and uh, jumping in a little bit early here because the vice president, Kamala Harris, is in Charlotte. She is at uh, the, the Cats facility on uh, South Boulevard, and she just started speaking. Let's eavesdrop in, shall we? And the people of North Carolina, whether the cameras are on or the cameras are off. So thank you for your leadership. Thank you. And, of course, Governor, it is always good to be with you. It is always good to be with you. And, Mayor, thank you for hosting us. So this is a day that we are celebrating, as we will continue to do, the passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And North Carolina, you know well, leaders like Congresswoman Adams, like Governor Roy Cooper, like Mayor Vi Lyles, like all of the state and local elected officials who are here today, leaders like Senator Richard Burr and Senator Tom Tillis, all made it possible for me and the President to turn the bipartisan infrastructure deal into the bipartisan infrastructure law. Because of their work, because of our work together, America is moving again. Because ultimately, that's what infrastructure is all about, getting people moving. You know, the way I see it, infrastructure gives people what they need to get where they need to go. I mean, except all of the shipping containers and stuff in the supply chain, like not that stuff. And so think about the buses that are around us, the bus that's behind me. People rely on public transportation for all kinds of reasons. Transportation, mainly. To get groceries, Mm -hmm. to get to school on time, to get to work on time, to get to church on time. For millions of Americans, public transportation is part of their day every day. And a bus stop within walking distance can make all the difference versus a bus stop you have to walk for half an hour to get to. And we all know what it means for someone to miss a bus by just one minute and that it can mean being at least an hour late for work. All of these are issues that we will address by paying attention to the need to put resources into our public transit systems. And we all know that we just we're on one of these beautiful electric rail cars, but we all know what it's like to be on, a, on an outdated rail car. We were talking about that in terms of the frequency that it might break down and, and the frequency. With right, we don't have outdated rail cars for commuting in Charlotte. I'm not sure what they told her on that rail car, but no, it's all pretty new. As safe or as healthy as it can be. And people who use public transportation for their commute often spend much more of their time in transit, time that they could be spending with their friends and family, helping their children do their homework, time they could spend running essential errands or even relaxing after a hard day work. And there is a major repair backlog in our nation. 24,000 buses, 5,000 rail cars, 200 stations that are in need of work, thousands of miles of tracks, signals, and power systems in our country need to be repaired. We need to get fixing all of these things. Well, I thought that's what that infrastructure bill was supposed to do. North Carolina public. Why are we paying more in inflation stuff now? Public good, and that is why we are investing in it. With our bipartisan infrastructure law, we will make the largest ever investment in public transit 
in our nation's history. North Carolina alone will receive $910 million for public transit over the next five years. And Governor Cooper, I want to thank you for always being such a very strong and powerful advocate for the needs of this state. <laughs> and for here in Charlotte, Mayor, well, you are doing extraordinary work, upgrading your bus system with more connections, more frequent service, and more electric buses. And I know that the funding that we are delivering will help with all of that important By the way, all of the cars that sat in and traffic while she and Buttigieg came from the airport, what do you think the carbon footprint was for that? Offset the electric buses? Yes? No? What do you think? And this law is going to help you build those systems. On top of public transit, our bipartisan infrastructure law will also make the most significant investment to fix our roads and bridges in 70 years. And I don't need to tell this group of leaders that across North Carolina, there are more than 3,000 miles of highway that need to be repaired. Highways like I-85. Look at all the people nodding. <laughs> In addition... We got the laugh. That was good. I was, I was kind of scared we weren't going to have a laugh while she was in Charlotte. Among other things, think about what that will mean, not only for the passengers who need to get where they need to go, but also it will help reduce the supply chain bottlenecks that families are experiencing right now. We will also, with this law, replace lead pipes so that every American can have clean drinking water what? so that our babies oh my are not drinking toxic water, which in many cases will have irreparable damage to their ability to learn. I get the sense that with she's not terribly proficient together, at reading the teleprompter. Broadband. It's just... It's a vibe I'm catching. And urban areas. Which I know, and again, the governor and I have talked about this, is a big issue for the people of this state. And why do we do this? We do this work so that every American can have affordable and accessible high-speed internet connections to do the work that we know, certainly during the course of the pandemic, became so necessary, whether it is allowing our children to have access to the internet to get their homework done, you know, long gone, I will speak to certain generation of people that includes myself, long gone is in Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> they need to have access to the internet to be able to excel and reach their God-given capacity. Let's think about access to high-speed internet for our small businesses and how that helps and is a necessity for them to be able to do their important work. Let's think about high-speed internet and access for the purposes of telemedicine so that folks in rural communities can have access to the kind of care that they deserve and need. High-speed internet access also for uh, Fortnite, right, for the gaming, Fortnite. They're located right in North Carolina, the parent company. It's vital. Jobs and good-paying union jobs. Jobs like a fellow I met by the name of Jeff Bird has. So Jeff Bird is a line design technician that I met with in New Hampshire. His skill and his important work is to attach fiber to utility poles to keep up with the demand for high-speed internet. 
jobs like Walter Cody has. So Walter, I met with him. He's a construction inspector. And what he does... Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the traffic, see how well that's uh, been faring since the vice president and the transportation secretary came to town and upended everybody's commute plans and travel plans for the day. Boomer Von Cannon, what's it looking like? Yeah, she's in town promoting the infrastructure law. Actually, she's done promoting that. She shifted pretty quickly to uh, promoting the Build Back Better plan. Uh, By the way, if you were sitting in traffic uh, between Charlotte Douglas International Airport and the South End area, uh, they got rolling roadblocks all over the place because that's the route that they were taking. Um, And the visit is scheduled uh, to wrap up here about 2.50. So... Steer clear of the area. If you're already in it, uh, well, Godspeed. Hope that you have a uh, a rolling roadblock that lets you pass. Now, she talked about how the Build Back Better Act is going to basically solve all of the problems uh, in this post-apocalyptic environment uh, that America finds itself in, through no fault, obviously, of of her or the administration. Um, She says it's going to reduce the costs for elder care, for child care. Uh, She says it is just not right that parents uh, or you have to be forced to quit uh, their jobs in order to care for a a member of their family. And uh, she said uh, the Build Back Broke, I'm sorry, the Build Back Better Act would uh, also reduce the uh, cost of prescription drugs. And then she said that she has met so many people who are part of the sandwich generation. Now, I paused the live feed here because I'm not sure what the sandwich generation is. But she's, she's got that smirk going. And I think she's about to bust out a joke here, as she does at the most inappropriate time. So I'm kind of curious what the sandwich generation is. Let's take a listen. It- no, it's... Oh, it, it ended. I thought that might happen. Her comments ended. Yeah, and they killed the feed. Darn it! I'm going to have to go find out what the sandwich generation is then. (laughs) I suspect it has something to do with the people in the middle of the old parents and the young children and they're sandwiched in between. You know, like, I don't know, every member of the nuclear family and the extended family like we all used to be. Like, when I was growing up, my grandma lived in the room upstairs and grandpa lived across the street we moved him into the house across the street and yes it was very very difficult mom was the primary caregiver to grandma for years and uh grandpa got uh he had alzheimer's and we moved him into the house that uh we sold the house that he was in towards the city in new york and then we moved him out to the island out to the sticks if you will to the suburbs and Mom, you know, and all of us kids at that point, we were all old enough to, you know, kind of help take care of him. But the Alzheimer's just progressed uh, pretty steadily. And so uh, he eventually uh, had to be uh, put into a a home where uh, he eventually died. And Grandma was upstairs and they initially brought her to the house to die. And she lived for years upstairs (laughs) in the in the guest uh, in the guest bedroom. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that is what families 
do. That's kind of the point of the families. Now, I understand, like, people don't have large families, and I get that, and so not everybody can be taken care of by their family. But I'll never forget when uh, Christie's father, Tom, when uh, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma, and he had a, which is a, a tumor in his brain, and uh, he went, we sold his house, and we uh, moved him to Christie's sister's uh, farm. And I'll never forget what one of the, uh, the hospice nurses told him at the time was, don't ever feel bad about, you know, you being a burden here. Like, you need to just eliminate those thoughts from your head, because he would constantly say stuff like that. And her point was that, and she said this to him, was that you are giving your kids a gift, And you may not see it like that now, but you're giving them a gift. And here's why. They will never wonder if they could have done more. They will never have those thoughts. And as one who grew up in that uh, scenario that I just laid out, like, I can tell you that that is true. There was never any doubt that that my mom and dad and my brother and two sisters, our family, that we did everything that we could to help grandma and grandpa. And the same is true for um, for my father-in-law with my sister-in-law. So, like, that's, that's the gift. That's part of the human experience. And this is one of the things that always drives me nuts about people who push and push and push for more and more government is that it robs people of these experiences. And it basically makes them this deal that, well, you don't have to worry about this. We'll take care of it for you. As if... The government plan to take care of it is going to be adequate or better than us doing it ourselves. I find that to be a bit of a Faustian bargain, but that's just me. And, you know, based on my experience, other people may have had a very good experience with, you know, government caring for them at the end of their lives. That's possible. Hancock's Bikes for Kids, all day from 10 a.m. until 7 p.m. at Bank of America Stadium. We're picking up bicycles that you first pick up and hand to us, and then we get them to the kids. That's how it goes. So, uh, Carolina Panthers, WSOC-TV, WBT, we're all going to be out at Bank of America Stadium. We'd love to see you uh, drop off a bike, a new bike, uh, and we'll get it to the kids. Hancock's Bikes for Kids, 28 years he's been doing this. Uh, almost as uh, almost as old as me. Almost. Like 29, roughly. Go to WBT.com for details. Also, uh, Kids First of the Carolinas, KFOTC.org for details. Alrighty, so let me get to the, um, the, the big topic here, which is the Dobbs case. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This is the Supreme Court case that got argued yesterday. Oral arguments concerns a 2018 law in Mississippi that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. As the law stands now, Roe v. Wade and the decisions that came after it, KCV Planned Parenthood specifically, um, states have to allow a woman to be able to get an abortion up to the point of viability or when the baby can survive on its own outside the womb. That's where this comes from, the viability standard. And most states hold that standard, hold this line, this viability line, at 20 to 24 weeks. So with Mississippi's law, 
saying that you can't do any abortions prior to or sorry after 15 weeks of pregnancy then that's obviously a violation of that viability standard hence the case okay daily wire reports many are asking why the case this one specifically is so important and why was it watched so closely and it had to do with the supreme court uh the question that they were considering okay so when the when the supreme court agreed to hear the mississippi case it said that it was going to consider the question of whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional pre-viability okay so this is the particularly the the period of time before that viability deadline that uh, even you know justice blackman at one point called uh, arbitrary so uh they said at the time that by looking at that question they could rule that states can make their own laws regarding abortion again even possibly banning it up to the point of conception. The high court could give power back to the states to restrict abortion like they were able to do prior to the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. And uh, if you look at the the, lay, uh, the the geography here, 21 states have pro-life laws or constitutional amendments that would make basically all abortions in their states illegal if Roe were to be overturned. There are five more states that would probably prohibit abortion as soon as they could. So that's like 26. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is a uh, pro-abortion group, uh, these states include Florida, Indiana, Montana, Nebraska, and Wyoming. This is considered to be the most conservative Supreme Court in decades. And keep in mind, the decision here is going to be announced sometime around June. So right in the middle of the midterm elections. So that's going to be fun. All right, so let's start here. We've got Scott Stewart. He is the Solicitor General from Mississippi. And uh, so he's, you know, obviously representing the state in this case. Here was his opening remarks yesterday where he lays out, like, this is the premise of our case. Here we go. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life. Consider this case. The Mississippi law here prohibits abortions after 15 weeks. The law includes robust exceptions for a woman's life and health. It leaves months to obtain an abortion. Yet the courts below struck the law down. It didn't matter that the law law applies when an unborn child is undeniably human, when risks to women surge, and when the common abortion procedure is brutal. The lower courts held that because the law prohibits abortions before viability, it is unconstitutional no matter what. Rowan Casey's core holding, according to those courts, is that the people can protect an unborn girl's life when she just barely can survive outside the womb, but not any earlier when she needs a little more help. That is the world under Roe and Casey. That is not the world the Constitution promises. The Constitution places its trust in the people. On hard issue after hard issue, the people make this country work. Abortion is a hard issue. It demands the best from all of us, not a judgment by just a few of us. When an issue affects everyone, and when the Constitution does not take sides on it, 
It belongs to the people. Roe and Casey have failed, but the people, if given the chance, will succeed. This court should overrule Roe and Casey and uphold the state's law. I welcome the court's questions. All right. So they each um, uh, make these opening statements. They run about two minutes. And that is the premise of uh, Mississippi's argument, right, that uh, Roe and Casey, these two different cases, because first it was Roe v. Wade and then it was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And both of these rulings, he says, have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or our traditions. And they have damaged the democratic process. They poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. And for 50 years now, they have kept the court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. Right? Because the passions haven't died down on either side of this issue, which actually speaks to sort of the supremacy of his argument, right? It, it, it's proof, it's evidence that what he's saying is true. These things should be fought out in the public arena, right? In public opinion. And we express our will through the legislature, not through a judge or a couple judges on the bench, a couple of lawyers with robes. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Um, this also has some hints, to me at least, of the enumerated powers that, you know, you've got the Constitution giving you the enumerated powers. Here's what the federal government should and sh- uh, should do. This is what they can do. And anything not explicitly enumerated here is left to the people and the states. Right? This is a federalism argument. And my bias is showing I agree with this position. That's that's where I tend to come down because I'm a federalist. I tend to come down in agreement with Mr. Scott Stewart. Um, he is then going to be subjected to Q&A from the justices. We'll hear some of the highlights of those in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. And you can also email Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. I'm also on Twitter. Oh, and also remember, the podcast get posted, too. So uh, if you miss any of the show, first off, that hurts my heart. Secondly, you can get it by uh, just going to wbt.com. And it's just you click on the uh, the link there for me, and boom, you just follow the podcast. It's free, and then it just comes right to your phone every day. It actually comes to your phone during the show, live. It's crazy. What kind of newfangled wizardry is this? So the uh, Supreme Court, here's the oral arguments in the case of uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And Scott Stewart is the Solicitor General from Mississippi, and uh, he's on behalf of the petitioners, and uh, he makes his opening a statement, it's about a minute, 50 seconds or so, and then he uh, starts taking questions. And uh, I will say, like in the past, a lot of these questions, and this is one of the things that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas was always very critical of and would actually refuse to participate in a lot of this uh, over the years. He did not like the constant interruptions. But during the pandemic, it forced them to do this stuff remotely, and so it became much more structured. And now Thomas is asking all sorts of questions. And I, I find it to be a much easier 
format to follow along with. All right, so here is Justice Breyer, one of the court's liberals. Uh, He says there are two parts uh, of the Casey decision, KCV Planned Parenthood. One is that they reaffirm Roe v. Wade, but he says put that to the side. He says the second is an opinion for the court. Um, The second part is about what uh, stare decisis principles should be used. Stare decisis is essentially precedent. Okay, it's like they're very big about like making sure that what we did in the past stays the same. It must always be stable. It's binding. It's precedent. And you can never undo precedent, even the bad decisions. If you do want to undo bad decisions as precedent, you better have some, uh, you know, some workable way to get there, a believable explanation. You can't just say, man, that was a really bad decision. Like when we said separate but equal, terrible decision. Dred Scott, terrible decision, right? But uh, we can't just like say it was a bad decision because then people would, you know, think we're political. <laughs> like this is what they said during the oral arguments yesterday. So here is Breyer saying uh, this about the starry decisis and how uh, Casey, the second uh, abortion related case, uh, how it laid this out for the court. And they say Roe is special. Roe is special. What's special about it? Tell us. They say it's rare. They call it a watershed. Why? Because the country is divided, because feelings run high, and yet the country, for better or for worse, decided to resolve their differences by this court laying down a constitutional principle, in this case, women's choice. That's what makes it rare. I like how he assumes like that was somehow like the country's decision. Like everybody got together and said, okay, let's let the Supreme Court decide it. What the court said follows from that is that it should be more unwilling to overrule a prior case. Far more unwilling we should be, whether that case is right or wrong, than the ordinary case. And why? Well, they have a lot of words there, but I'll give you about 10 or 20. There will be inevitable efforts to overturn it. Of course there will. Feelings run high. And it is particularly important to show what we do in overturning a case is grounded in principle and not social pressure, not political pressure. Only, quote, the most convincing justification can show that a later decision overruling, if that's what we did, was anything but a surrender to political pressures or new members. And that is an unjustified repudiation of principles on which the court stakes its authority. And then there are two sentences I'd like to read, because they say they really mean this, the the court, not just three. To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to reexamine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. So I guess we can never revisit and this the last stuff. last sentence, after they quote uh, Potter Stewart on the same point, they say overruling unnecessarily and under pressure would lead to condemnation, mm-hmm. the court's loss of confidence in the judiciary, the ability of the court to exercise the judicial power 
and to function as the Supreme Court of a nation dedicated to the rule of law. Now, that's the opinion of the court. All right? And it's about stare decisis and how we approach it. And I hope everybody reads this. It's at 505 U.S. 854 to 869. All right. What do you say to that? Uh, sure, you're, sure uh, Justice Breyer. I, I would say a couple things. I would say um, we have very closely gone through the factors that the Casey court itself went through in stare decisis. More than half of our brief is devoted to stare decisis. We now have 30 years in the wake of Casey to see what uh, Casey has done and what it hasn't done. Well, it's um, caused some bad things in the eyes of some people and some good things in the eyes of some people. You your can, Honor. All right, all right, go ahead. You, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, what I'd emphasize, Your Honor, is that uh, to the extent that, that the – I would not say it was the people that, that called this court to end the controversy. The people um, – you know, many, many people um, vocally really just wanted to have the matter returned to them so that they could decide it, decide it locally, deal with it the way they thought best, and at least have a fighting chance to have their view prevail, which was not given to them under Roe and then as a result under Casey. And, and I'd also emphasize, Your Honor, that on, on stare decisis, just as I said, the last 30 years, workability, um, developments in the law, uh, factual developments that states can't account for, uh, the workability, the undue burden standard alone, many problems. On all the metrics that Casey was describing, or the vast bulk of them, it, Casey fails. And I'd also emphasize this as well, Justice Breyer, that Casey was not um, was, was not a, a great example of simply letting precedent stand. It, right. it recast Roe's reasoning. It overruled two of the court's most important abortion decisions. Um, it jettisoned the trimester framework of Roe itself and adopted a new standard unknown to other parts of the law. Those are not the hallmarks of precedent. Right. So at, at the same time, in the Casey decision, when they're saying this is precedent. This is binding precedent. And it's such a divisive issue that you better have a really good reason if you're going to try and undo this in the future, because it's really, really controversial. Yet they did the same things. They unwound previous decisions, right? They blew up other precedents. They did the thing that they're now saying no one else can do. This is, and it was, a great example of judicial activism.